Yellen Marinovich, your host. Welcome back to Learn With Less, a family enrichment program for parents, caregivers, and infants and toddlers of all developmental levels. In this podcast series, we get together to sing a few songs, discuss some ideas for play, outline some insight about early development, and talk about life as a parent or caregiver in these early years of parenthood. The mission of Learn With Less is to provide confidence to new parents that you can support and connect with your baby or toddler without having to buy a single toy. This episode was recorded with a live audience of parents and caregivers as an added benefit of those participating in the Learn With Less curriculum online program. If you'd like to learn more about Learning With Less or about my best-selling books, Understanding Your Baby or Understanding Your Toddler, open a new tab in your browser to my website, learnwithless.com. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll take just a moment of your time to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This allows us to reach more families and share our values of education, inclusivity, simplicity, and respect when it comes to early learning and early parenthood. Hello everybody, hello everybody, it's nice to see you here today. Hello everybody, hello everybody, it's nice to see you here. We can start by saying hello to the people who are with us. Hello to Ayalet, hello to the singers, hello, 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 hello. Hello to the babies, hello to the toddlers, hello, hello, hello. Since I don't know your name, I'll help you sing the song and you can fill it in. Ready? Hello to your child's name, hello to your name, hello, 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 hello everybody, hello everybody, hello, hello, hello. Today we have got a special guest on Learn With Less, Jennifer Russell, the incredible warrior mama of preemie twins and a toddler, as well as a pediatric occupational therapist and the voice behind the Instagram handle OT Mom Diaries. Let's welcome her to the show. Hello to Jennifer, hello to Jennifer, hello, 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 hello. Hello to all our old friends, hello to all our new friends, hello, hello, hello. One last time. Hello everybody, hello everybody, it's nice to see you here today. Hello everybody, hello everybody, it's nice to see you here. Today, I'm speaking with Jennifer Russell, a pediatric occupational therapist by training who is currently on maternity leave with her NICU warrior twin babies and spunky preschooler. Jen is committed to boosting parent confidence and connection, and her passion lies in supporting young children and families to set the foundation for greater participation in life. She believes that supporting young children's emerging skills, as well as bolstering parent understanding during early development, sets the stage for further learning. So Jennifer, I first connected with you on Instagram by following your feed over at OT Mom Diaries. And I just love how you share and talk about your experience, both as a mom and a professional. And I wanna thank you for being here. So welcome. 
Thank you so much. It was, uh, I was honestly so shocked and floored since I've been listening to you for a couple years. Um, I have a bit of a commute when I go back to work. So when I went back to work after my first mat leave, you were a regular in our car for those commutes um, <laughs> for my daughter in the back. So it's a, it's a pleasure to be talking to you. Oh, awesome. Well, I've asked them onto the show today to speak to us really about your story and your journey into the world of having three kids under three, and a bit about your NICU experience and about your philosophy in supporting all three of your young children. But first, why don't you just tell us a bit more about you and how you got into the work you're doing today? Uh, well, as you said, I'm a pediatric occupational therapist. I graduated uh, from OT school back in 2010. And at that point, within a couple months, I was super lucky to land what I thought at the time, or still is my dream job right away in um, a government-funded children's treatment center here in Ontario, Canada, Canadian here. Um, and since 2010, I've primarily worked with the children and their families, zero to five years old. And in case some listeners are thinking, what is occupational therapy? I came prepared to <laughs> to explain that one. Um, Perfect. Our title is so confusing for people. They always assume we have something to do with helping people work. But as any good pediatric occupational therapist will do, we will then joke that, in fact, children have very important jobs to do. <laughs> so, and then my next joke that usually follows that one up uh, for any new family <laughs> is that, you know, the speech therapist will look at helping your child to talk. The physiotherapist is going to help them to walk. And then the OT is going to look at all the other stuff <laughs> in between right. walking and talking. Well, tell us just a couple of little tidbits about what that might look like. So people have just a, like a firm grasp. Oh, good question. Um, so basically, we, we look at daily function. Again, another cheesy joke. I'm full of them is that we put the fun in function for, <laughs> for kids. Since there are so many aspects of their day as they're learning and growing and playing that they're really, like kind of how you said before, they're setting those foundations for future skills that they need. And a lot of that really is supporting that early development, usually as an OT to help make all the other things in between more manageable. I'll break it down into three main categories when I'm working with families. So I might ask how things are going in a category called self-care. So how your child's doing with dressing, eating, sleeping, their ability to participate or the parent's ability to care for them, especially for those younger children where they're a bit more dependent on you, um, seeing a kind of how you can support them in feeding or sleeping early on. The next category we call kind of productivity. So to be a productive child, usually that's play as they get a bit older into school years, looking at how they're functioning at school and participating in routines, circle time, uh, classroom activities. And then the third category we call leisure. So kind of just what that child wants to do on a daily basis. We kind of just yeah. think of occupation as the meaningful activities that people want to do and people need to do on a daily basis. And we look at any of those barriers that are in the way to having those children participate in what they want to do every day. Perfect. Ah, so well stated. I've had several OTs come on and everyone does their little bit, but that was, that was great. Thank you. Uh, so tell us, you became a mom the first time around. Tell us a bit about life back then. You went from professional working with families to being an actual parent. So tell me a bit about what were some of the biggest challenges that you found as yourself experiencing the first time around? The first time around, I guess it was just kind of an eye opener, I think, for me sure. to kind of transition from telling people what to do or should do to then realizing maybe how realistic or not realistic some of the recommendations or things that I may yeah. be giving to families uh, pre-kids. <laughs> Um, and just totally 
the aspect of time and what you kind of have the bandwidth available to do. So I guess not necessarily, well, I guess it was a challenge in kind of just being reflecting back on previous assumptions or clinical skills and kind of reflecting on how going forward, I'm going to change how I work with a family or what I might recommend going forward and just breaking things down just being more manageable being more digestible and kind of saying, if I can give you one thing to work on this week, it's this versus maybe yeah. the 10 things I might've given them <laughs> before having my but, own child. <laughs> yeah. So the overwhelm is the need to really bring things down into one piece. I think that's exactly what I found as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now your little girl's a toddler and you get pregnant again. Mm -hmm. Talk us through a little bit about your journey with the twins. I'll just say, so if I take everyone back to, I guess, our 12-week uh, ultrasound with the twins, my first daughter was, I think, one and a half at the time. And we had that first ultrasound at 12 weeks and kind of had our world rock to find out that there were two babies instead of one at that point along. <laughs> and then um, we were still recovering from that news um, when my obstetrician called us to schedule another ultrasound at 16 weeks. I'm not sure how it is in other places, but here in Ontario, Canada, it's routine. You kind of have a 12 week ultrasound and then you don't have another one usually until 20 weeks unless yeah. um, there's other complications and things. So I was a bit surprised to get a call that there was a new uh, ultrasound. I wasn't, I never needed the first time around. And it was because we had twins um, and later okay. we found it, especially because we had what they call monochorionic twins, mm -hmm. um, which are identical twins that share one placenta. So we had to be followed much more closely and scanned more frequently for complications, yeah. um, the very complications that did happen. Um, yeah. So I guess that'll be my one awareness plug that if you know somebody who is expecting twins, um, um, and they haven't been told to have this extra scan at 16 weeks, make sure that you're getting monitored by somebody who knows what they're looking for. Because at 16 weeks, um, we it revealed the beginnings of something called twin-to-twin -twin transfusion syndrome, or I'll just call that TTTS from now on to keep it short. And this only happens to those identical twins who are sharing a placenta. So my girls had shared blood vessels in this shared placenta. And uh, essentially, to sum it up shortly, it's just that the blood flow issues occur. Um, and one baby, who's known as the donor, ends up kind of giving away, sending away all their blood and nutrition to what they call the recipient twin through these shared mm -hmm. blood vessels and things get kind of pretty scary pretty fast. We were immediately referred to a hospital in Toronto where we luckily only live a short distance from as we later found out that maybe only one or two other hospitals in all of Canada can deal with this uh, and are ready to treat. Um, so we felt really fortunate that um, either drive when there's no traffic or take a, a commuter train downtown. So we had that scan around 17 weeks. And then by 18 weeks on the dot, I had an in utero surgery that I was mm -hmm. wide awake for. They made a small incision beside my belly button and they just placed in a camera and a laser to essentially zap all of those blood vessels that were causing the blood flow issue. Um, and I was just there mm -hmm. watching. They asked if I wanted to wow. watch on a TV screen and I said, sure, I guess having a healthcare background, I was more just fascinated and I was like, it's not very often you'll have that type of opportunity no. to see <laughs> your fetuses at, at 18 weeks. Um, so I saw them, saw little hands, feet Aww. float by and it was truly surreal. I was pretty, we were, we were very successful. The surgery was very successful. They were able to stop wow. that blood flow issue, but there's a but. The doctors had told us that on top of this blood flow issue, the girls were not sharing their placenta evenly. So they kind of explained that with the surgery, they could prevent Olivia, our donor baby, from 
giving away what she was getting, but they couldn't give her any more of the placenta than what she had. So she had what they also call selective intrauterine growth restriction or IUGR on top of the twin to twin transfusion. So they didn't know at that point if uh, she had a big enough share to grow big enough and strong enough to make it to a gestation where she could be viable. So it was kind of just a wait and see after that surgery. It's a lot. It's a lot to take in, especially when you're managing the big needs of a toddler at the same time. Oh, yes. Yes. Mm. That's a Um, lot. Yeah. It was a lot. (laughs) It gets gets even more dramatic. Um, Let's hear it. Keep going. So uh, our specialist at the time of the surgery gave her about a 30% chance of surviving the pregnancy. Not to mention on top of that, one of the main risks in having the surgery itself is your water breaking because they put a hole in it (laughs) to do the surgery. So then from weeks 18 to 31, we had ultrasounds every two weeks just to kind of keep monitoring to make sure that the surgery was successful and that it was, it was actually really quite incredible the degree of with precision that they could monitor certain blood flows to different parts of each baby's brain and heart. And it was, we tried our best to keep up with what they were telling us. And I was so grateful to have the OT background that I, I can't imagine what it's like for those parents who don't have that kind of previous knowledge to rely on to be, it would just be so overwhelming. At one point there was one follow-up and I remember clearly it was a, it was Black Friday. Um, so about three weeks after our surgery. And for some reason we had um, a new specialist filling in that day to interpret our results from our ultrasound. And he actually told us that, well, my husband didn't come because things have been going so well. So I was by myself and that doctor actually told me to prepare for her to pass away. And that based on what he was seeing that day, she wouldn't make it and to be fully prepared at the next ultrasound to not hear her heartbeat. So we kind of spent two weeks grieving really hard in the middle of everything and trying to make sense of what it all meant. But then at the next follow-up, she was there. (laughs) She was fighting hard. We never saw that doctor again. So I never got to fully tell him (laughs) how I felt about his prediction. Um, Right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you rehearsed that one in your head many times. Oh, yeah, yeah. But then was at the same time glad not to have to see him again. Of course, yeah. Um, So then, yeah, Every, every two weeks she was there, she was always tracking underneath the first percentile, if you can imagine a baby growing that slowly and that small. So we just kind of kept showing up, just waiting to find out how things were going to happen. It was always just looking for signs that we needed to deliver, that, that things would be, be better out than in, as they say. Right. So right. we reached 31 weeks and I was admitted to the hospital on my birthday <laughs> oh my. with some new symptoms that were kind of happening that we weren't sure what they meant. So I had the steroid shots at that point. They do two shots, I think 24 hours apart, I believe to help with the lung development um, to prepare for premature labor. I was there for a week. Every single morning at that point, I had an ultrasound. Mm -hmm. Again, looking at all those precise measurements. And then every three hours, they hooked up my tummy to what they call uh, non-stress tests or NSTs. Kind of like those monitors they put on when you have contractions when you're about to go into labor, just to be um, tracking heart rates and things like that to make sure if they see any big decelerations, then it just means they need closer monitoring or maybe they need to come out. So because Olivia was always so tiny, um, our doctor had kind of, when we asked her kind of his blunt opinion of when is it that she has a chance to make it, uh, he told us that he felt we needed to make to 32 weeks for her to be big enough um, and strong enough 
So uh, lo and behold, 32 weeks and one day. Uh, that morning, the daily ultrasound showed some fluid in her tummy that wasn't there the day before. And up until that point all week, uh, the steroid shots actually give the babies what they call a honeymoon period, where the steroids might temporarily increase blood flow and give the babies some more positive readings than they might have without them. So she'd been doing really well all week. And then we saw the fluid on her tummy and the doctor said, we don't know what this means, but we know leaving her in there means she's going to get sicker. So you're having your babies today. And we had them that afternoon and they were able to kind of uh, show me Evelyn, baby A, the recipient. Quickly, they pulled her out first and mm -hmm. showed me her on the other side of the curtain. So I got to hear her. And then Olivia, though, needed to be taken right away to the resuscitation room. And my husband was able to go with them as the doctors mm -hmm. kind of did their thing to make sure everybody was breathing and seeing what kind of support they need. Um, while I had to wait to uh, be stitched back up, I think it was a good... I don't know, half an hour, 40 minutes till I got to get in the room and see how everyone was, was doing. <laughs> so Evelyn, um, just to give you an idea of like how small everybody was, Evelyn at 32 weeks and one day was three pounds, 10 ounces. And Olivia was only one pound, 10 ounces. Wow. Still, even though she was 32 weeks gestation, she was about the size of a 25 week old baby. Evelyn was able to breathe right away on room air and then Olivia just needed some light kind of pressure to help those lungs fill or mm -hmm. otherwise known as CPAP for anyone that knows what that is but actually didn't require any supplemental oxygen which was pretty incredible for such a small baby. Those such a fighter. She, she was. They actually say that sometimes those IUGR babies because they're under so much stress in utero that they come out just fighting because they're they're just used to fighting for their life. Yeah. And then the next part, I'll, sorry, it keeps going. Um, no, it's the story. <laughs> no apologies. <laughs> so everything was kind of under control um, for a day. We were like, wow, okay. We didn't know until that day if we were going to be a family of four or five. So we kind of started settling into, we're going to be a family of five. We need to buy a van. Emma, our <laughs> All the practical issues. Yeah, Emma needs to be moved into a smaller room so the twins can share her big bedroom. You kind of start mm. nesting now. But then on the second morning, the nurses uh, that had been with her the day before had said to me that they thought, uh, they asked me if they thought her stomach looked more swollen and more red. And when I looked, I definitely thought it did. So the doctors did some x-rays and saw air in her abdomen now. So the doctor sat me down and said that this meant there must be a hole somewhere in her bowel and that kind of her breathing support was pushing air now into her tummy through that hole. At this point, at this hospital, they couldn't tell me if this was just kind of like a fluke, a hole just from her bowel being fragile, from being so restricted in her growth, or if it was something called necrotizing enterocolitis or they call it NEC for short, which is a pretty common and, and very aggressive and very scary infection that preemies can get in the NICU. They needed to send her uh, across the street to a specialized children's hospital. Mm -hmm. So that part was, I still feel like when I think about memory, play it back in my mind, it, it feels like I was kind of watching from above, like one of those moments yeah. in your life. They had to intubate her, so kind of put a breathing tube in and stabilize her to be moved and prepped for the surgery. And I still remember We'd had the same nurse for a couple of days and she was crying as she was getting her ready. So it was just kind of like, wow, okay. If the nurse is this upset, like this is, this is serious. <laughs> I just, I just remember 
sitting beside the bed being helpless. I couldn't touch her, just waiting for the team to move her and singing her You Are My Sunshine because that's what I sang to them in my tummy the whole the whole time. So yeah, so we, my husband had to wheel me in a wheelchair across the street since I was still recovering from the C-section. It was the middle, like the middle of February. It was freezing and so cold. They, oh my gosh. For whatever reason, I we weren't allowed to go with the actual transport team through the specialized tunnels and things that they bring her. So we oh, met her. Oh gosh. Yeah, I'm not sure what the policy and procedure is there. So we met with the surgeon in the NICU at the other hospital and he was kind of going through all we had to sign off all the paperwork saying that we understood all the risks and then yeah before we knew it he was back and he was able to say that even though he thought it was neck that infection it wasn't mm. and we didn't know at the time it's not been later kind of confirmed that it was just when a fetus has really severe IUGR it's really smart and it takes the blood and nutrition that it is getting and it sends it to all the really critical organs like the brain and the heart and the bowel mm -hmm. is after the first place that it kind of starts neglecting so it can become very fragile and then if there's that meconium sticky poop in there that the babies yeah. have that those breathing supports can end up blowing that through the sides of the intestine so wow. the surgeon removed an inch and a half of her bowel but because she was so tiny she was less than a pound and a half when he operated because of that weight that they lose and he didn't want to i guess for lack of a better explanation so both back ends together because um, that would just potentially cause more scar tissue more block blockage and potentially mm -hmm. another rupture so he left the two ends outside of her tummy mm -hmm. and gave her what they call an ostomy so there was a egg that got secured around what we called her two little nubs <laughs> to catch her stool and she came home with this ostomy 10 weeks later and okay. I was left to be the nurse at home to change it and clean it. But How then, often did you have to do that? I mean, every time a newborn poos well, or pees. It, luckily like has, it had like a little cap on the end that as it filled up, you could empty it into a diaper or a syringe. But a lot of times, depending on how good you were at putting it on or how well you cleaned the surface, like to stick the bag on, that usually was more the concern was that it started leaking. So some days if I did a really good one, it would last maybe three or four days. But then there were some days, I think if I was extra sleep deprived or or what have you, that it felt like upwards of like three times a day where it, when it was quite the process too. She wasn't a huge fan because you clean the area and drag it off and yeah. Of course. So, okay. So yeah. let's just back up for just a second because you said 10 weeks later they came. Did both twins stay for 10 weeks or did she stay longer, Olivia? No, nope, yeah, sorry. I can, I can go back. So Evelyn was kind of like a NICU rock star. She just was what they call like a feeder and grower. There were no complications. So when a baby's that little, they just need to wait till they've matured enough to be able to coordinate kind of that suck swallow breathe to be able to feed successfully at home and not without the support of um, the feeding tube down her nose so she yeah. was home in five weeks um, with so the feeding tube removed yeah amazing so, yeah so she she did great um she was bottle fed at that time mm -hmm. um and yeah so that was five weeks because usually when you have a baby premature they they tell you to prepare for them to at least be there until their due date. Right. So we were pretty lucky that she came home at what would have been like 37 weeks, mm -hmm. I guess. Then. Mm -hmm. And then, so those early days were, were really hard because the girls were in two different hospitals. Olivia couldn't be transferred back to where Evelyn was and Evelyn 
they wouldn't send her to a hospital that had more care than she needed. They do tend to stick babies. Um, and we were actually quite fortunate at the hospital that Evelyn was at. She would have otherwise been transferred to kind of what they call step-down care somewhere else. Mm. But because they weren't too full, they had said to us that if it's easier for you to have your babies across the street from each other versus in different yeah. cities, then <laughs> we'll do that. If for it's easier for you, right? Um. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I would kind of split my day. You know, I, I wake up. I would pump. Well, that was the other piece too, is that I remember the morning after Olivia's surgery, the nurses said to me, your breast milk is critical to your daughter's bowel recovery and her surgery, like she needs it. So I was pumping about nine times a day (laughs) to get that going. So that way my milk could help her heal. So there was pumping nine times a day. There was getting up, taking the train downtown. And then from the train, a subway up to one hospital for around three to four hours. Then I'd literally walk across the street while eating the sandwich that I packed in my backpack. I'd walk and eat over to the next hospital to spend another three or four hours with my other daughter. And then, I mean, my toddler was not even two yet when they were born. So she still needed me too. And we would, if she went a day without seeing me, we could see it in her behavior and knowing what I know about childhood and development and attachment. I was like, it's equally as important that like she feels all this stress. She knows what's going on and she needs to see me at least for an hour or two before she goes to bed. So Mm. every day was being torn three different ways and then waking up in the middle of the night for pump for babies that aren't even at home. How long were you in the hospital and what at what point did you go home? At least, I mean, obviously you were in the hospital all the time, but w- at what yes. point were you discharged? And that's a story in itself. I'll condense that. <laughs> so we had the baby Friday afternoon and they were trying to, like I would have been discharged the Sunday afternoon, but that's when we started seeing the difficulties. So I remember... I don't know, I think I was technically discharged, but she had the surgery Sunday night around like 11 p.m. or midnight. Mm. And we just kind of didn't leave the hospital because (laughs) we didn't know where else to go by midnight or whatever. So, but like by Monday morning, we had to be out and yeah, she was, it was pretty quick. Yeah. What was the biggest, I mean, in terms of both practical and emotional challenge that you would say for you that happened then when you were home and they were still there? Um, I feel like it, it's it is a big blur. Of course, but it was it was kind of like I don't know like and I do kind of compare it to the difference between when you have your first baby, the only and it's the only one you just get so used to doing and being everything for that that child, but then kind of when you don't have a choice, I don't know. It just it felt like this is what we have to do, and I trusted the teams, I trusted the doctors, the hospitals are so renowned that I just knew that I needed to take care of myself. I needed to pump and I needed to not get sick because if you get sick, you can't go to the NICU. Oh. So it was just kind of like, I think you just are purely functioning on adrenaline. Totally. Yeah. And you just, you're just moving kind of like a robot through what you need to do. And if you stop, you don't know if you'll start again. So right. you don't entertain that. <laughs> okay. So now everyone's home 10 weeks later. What then? How did you manage everyone's needs? What were your biggest challenges in all three of them at once? Um, we had um, a set of grandparents, or at least a grandma, 24-7. We Amazing. were so fortunate for at least a few good months. And even now, my mother-in-law still does help a few times a week. Because three at this age is just insane. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's like I can manage everybody during the day, but then I have no energy left at the end of the day to do the laundry or go grocery shopping or anything like that. So right. Um, and the twins now are how old? They are. They're almost <laughs> seventeen. Almost seventeen months. Uh, seventeen months and almost fifteen months corrected. Yeah. Amazing. Right. It's Amazing. It's hard to keep track of their actual yeah. age and the that correct yes. age for preemies. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in the beginning. <laughs> I got really good. At, I had this amazing um, pillow. That's like a twin size boppy pillow. So the only way I could really, the girls never ended up being able to actually breastfeed. So I actually exclusively pumped for 14 months. Evelyn, I don't know, the lactation consultant couldn't come up with anything other than she was a little bit lazy and just preferred the bottle. And then Olivia, yeah. because she was so tiny, she came home with strict kind of rules around being fed exactly on like a three hour schedule, a certain amount. And they had me adding formula to all of the breast milk for extra calories. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a lot of wiggle room to practice breastfeeding. Um, yeah. And then when you have twins and a toddler and you're still pumping because you need to be making milk, there's not a lot of time to, to practice. So I just kind of threw in the towel after about a month of being home and a few visits to the lactation consultant to just pump. Survive? Survive. Yeah. So then coming back to my big pillow, I, I found a way that I could lie each twin on their side, prop the bottle up, and then be pumping at the same time. So that at least nice. I could have some sanity and not kind of feed and then pump and, and then clean the bottles. It was more just if I can feed and pump at the same time, then uh, then I can at least have a little bit of free time to try and see the toddler or yeah snuggle a baby or right. shower <laughs> and actually enjoy or take care of something that yeah yeah to keep you alive yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right so you mentioned a little bit about your own background as an occupational therapist and you know having some knowledge at least a little bit of just the the medical knowledge the the terminology all of those things what about your mm -hmm. husband how is he faring i think he's an engineer by profession so it was just interesting i think too to see a therapist brain versus like an analytic and yeah. engineer brain and kind of what information stood out to him versus me where he'd get very stuck on like statistics and numbers and where like i'd always be more concerned like long-term function and like right. <laughs> that type of thing I do think he was really good at asking questions when he didn't understand. So he'd get his information sure. that way. But there was definitely a lot of times where I could be like, oh, they mean this or like that means that where yeah. I, it was, I guess he would get that secondhand through me and being able to kind of interpret what some of the doctors and nurses meant sometimes. Right. Especially around right. things like feeding. Right. That's great. Because there is so much, I mean, in general, there's so much of that physical care is sort of overwhelming when you have a new baby. And then when you have three babies, essentially, <laughs> especially the youngest of which have extreme physical care needs, that's a lot. That's a lot of the time. Yes. <laughs> so tell me more about as things went along, when do you feel like the physical care sort of started to subside and the actual care and love and play and all of that started to replace it? Um, that's a really good question. So at least by the time Olivia came home, she was two weeks past her due date. I'm trying to think. It was a couple months, like especially as I got used to just that care for the ostomy and we'd have different professionals coming and going from our homes. There were a lot of follow-up appointments right away too, where that kind of just takes all of your time and you're just yeah. trying to function and get from doctor to doctor and wait for results. But I'd say like yeah. a good two months at home to get in that groove of feeling like I've got this pumping and feeding thing down. 
I've got this ostomy bag thing down and then like, okay, now it's just time to snuggle a bit. And yeah, yeah, it was probably a couple, a a good couple months, but I was always so thankful that it wasn't my first parenting experience. And I always, when I would see brand new parents in the NICU, I would just feel for them because I couldn't imagine. Yeah. I mean, you're so overwhelmed as a new parent of a typically fully grown (laughs) full term baby that I was always so thankful that I already had some tools in my tool toolbox to kind of and you have that experience that like if a baby's crying you remember that like it was tough but you got through it and like without that added stress like it was yeah so my heart goes out to all you all you preemie mamas that 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 was your first experience that must have been so tough right it's tough all around Mm -hmm. and then knowing what you know about early development tell me a bit about what resonates with you about sort of the learn with less philosophy did you read both books or did you just read the toddler book i just got to the toddler book when when did you have them come out i, th- I don't know if it was wow the pregnancy but anyways but yeah like i part of that i mentioned that i wish i'd found the baby book but i've been all over the, the toddler book good um <laughs> So what resonates with me is that, you know, when all of a sudden you have three children under three, you just realize that you're living life with less anyway, less time, (laughs) less sleep, less patience. So you want to make the biggest impact in the limited time that you feel so that you feel like you are doing something good for and with your baby or toddler, as you always say. Um, But in reality, they really just need you and maybe some random stuff around the house. So when you can get that concise, impactful and practical information about their development and how to foster it without any crazy equipment or toys, it's so, so empowering. And then the philosophy is just a, such a great reminder of how it is those simple things and simple moments that matter the most. It's quality over quantity, um, which is what you got to work with when you're especially in some survival mode, whether yeah. that be because of premature birth or just life. Um, yeah. And you don't, need, you don't need to bring the bank to support their development. I wish I had found the books while the girls were babies, but I've been so appreciating the toddler book, especially as everybody gets older and busier. So yeah. currently I've been following along for their corrected age and love how simple your suggestion was even just at 15 months old that adding in music doesn't mean a full song. I think some people get really intimidated by, yeah. by music, especially I'm not that musically inclined. So just the reminder that you can just use one word and just change the intonation. So the girls are loving if we're making a tower, just up, up, up. And then it's just so funny to see that they look at me differently. They notice the activities different when I'm adding that in. It just keeps them interested that much longer and adds a bit more excitement and they they love it and even though I'm a therapist that's supposed to kind of know this stuff uh you forget at the end of a long day or I haven't been practicing right almost almost two when you're the mom it's it's harder (laughs) it's so much harder so to like have three or four pages a month to kind of turn to when I remember it whenever I remember it is really invaluable and so manageable and the suggestions are so incredibly easy to implement and it's often just a tweak to what you're doing to your daily routine anyway yeah yeah Mm, I couldn't have said it better myself (laughs) great so what what was it that made you feel that you even needed to find something like this like what do you feel like instigated Um, that that problem I guess you could call it um I think it was just like yeah that realization of just having no time and feeling I think no matter what your background as a parent you always have that that nagging feeling in the back of your mind that am I like am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing am I doing enough so I was just super intrigued that it was so simple and having had listened to you for a couple 
years. I knew exactly where kind of all your approaches and your games and everything was coming from. And I, I especially loved that just, you know, keep it simple. So I knew that I was completely in line with, with your philosophy and was just curious about what, what it looked like. And to be honest too, that I'm always looking for resources to give other parents. And I like to have it fully know what that resource is and read it myself um, mm -hmm. so that I'm not just saying, I think this is good, try it. So it was partly just as a clinician knowing, okay, I like everything that she does on her podcast. Let's see what the books look like. They might be helpful for me, but then it, I'll have a resource to recommend to other people. Yeah, excellent. That's awesome. Well, let's take just a brief break to hear a word from our sponsors. And then we're going to a few tips from Jen about supporting early development with multiple young children who have different developmental needs. And we're going to her favorite resources for parents and caregivers who are interested in learning more about that. As a parent or caregiver of an infant or toddler, you want to make sure you're doing it right. Everywhere you look, there's another learning toy or fancy subscription box that you don't have room for and that your child seems to lose interest in all too quickly. You want to support your infant or toddler's development, but you struggle finding the right toys or enough time and energy to do it. You just want the map to get through these first few years and find more joy in the journey as well. If any of this rings true for you, you're in the right place. Right now, I'm giving away my free infant and toddler development blueprint, a straightforward guide that will help you discover the four major areas of development in the first three years of life and what's involved in each of those areas. Find out what you can do to support development using what you already have in your home Learn how to follow my four pillar framework to maximize the time you're already spending with your tiny human and much, much more. If you're ready to boost your infant or toddler's learning, stop feel like you're winging it all the time and simplify your life, head to learnwithless.com slash blueprint and download my free infant toddler development blueprint today. Okay, Jennifer, let's get into it. We would love to hear after all this crazy experience what are your top tips for parents and caregivers who are hoping to better support their infants and toddlers, whether their babies are developing along a typical progression or whether they're at risk for delays or experiencing delays? So what are some of your best tips for families who need a boost of encouragement and confidence? I think, well, my number one tip I've got here in my notes in bold is just letting go of you struggle sometimes as a new mom to let anyone do anything else for your baby and it was so much easier the second time around when it was twins and they were premature and it was like literally i had no choice but to let it go and just right. take the help take all the help you can get then ask for more <laughs> i think sometimes it's just getting over i think it's something that's become cultural especially in north america that it feels like we're supposed mm -hmm. to do this we've lost that village we're, we're villageless and when i really did embrace that village this the second time around it was it was so like sound cheesy but beautiful and refreshing to see how well grandma or auntie or uncle could care and love on my child and it was a blessing to see those relationships flourish in a way that maybe I kind of blocked the first time with mm. my being unaware. Yeah, I so get that. I totally did the same thing the first time around yeah. and was totally less in control the second time around. Yeah. 
Yeah. But it is, I mean, it, it's really hard in my perspective. It was really hard to accept that even though as I was trying to figure out how to do the things and feeling like I was doing them quote unquote right or wrong, I was not able to just let go and accept that other people might do them and do them differently. And it would be equally as okay. And it would, you know, it would result in a deep connection with someone else in addition to me. And that's, Mm-hmm. It's hard, though. It's, it's so hard. hard. I think, you know, I think that first time, like, you get so protective that it feels like if you let someone kind of in and do the things that it's like a an instead kind of situation instead of an yeah. and so that they can have more beautiful connections instead of it taking from the one that you have, if that makes yeah. sense. I think that's perfect sense. Yeah. So yes, so that the main tip is whether they're preemies or new or you have two or you have one, just take the help, take all the freezer meals, take it off. <laughs> uh, and I guess just as an aside, I, a few people, other people have asked me when they have friends or family going through this situation where there's a premature birth or just a mom going through a hard time. And they always ask like, what's the best way to support someone going through that? And my number one tip is, you know, everyone, I know everyone always means so well. And there was always so many people saying like, anything you need, just let me know. But when you're going through that, you don't have kind of any, you don't even know what you need. You don't have any bandwidth or time to kind of reach out. Yeah. To set that up. Yeah. Yeah. To set it up. So it's more just like, if you know someone's going through something and you think you could do something helpful, just, just do it. Yeah. Even if, you know, it, it doesn't end up being that helpful or I'm sure it is, but they'll they'll get the gesture or reach out to their partner or the grandma or the aunt that's helping coordinate some things, drop off a meal. Food is always good. Pay for a hospital parking pass. Mm. A few people did where they gave us gift cards for, say, the coffee place that happens to be in the hospitals where mom's at. So if she Brilliant. forgot a lunch or so just kind of those simple little things that say, I'm thinking of you because I remember sometimes my mom would ask me, what do you want me to make you for dinner? And I honestly couldn't even, I couldn't even tell her. I was like, just, I just just here. (laughs) (laughs) Just put it in my mouth. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like I I couldn't even come up with how to tell the person that's living with me, helping me to to tell her what to make for dinner. It was, it was kind of that overwhelming. It was just like, I just know when I'm going to pump, when I'm going to go to each hospital, what train I'm going to catch home and I've got nothing else left. And that I need to put some sustenance in my body. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So don't ask, just do. So another piece, uh, again, preemie parents or any parents, I think you might be waiting for me to give you all those great nuggets for the child necessarily. But the more I learn in my own OT practice, the more I keep finding that sometimes it's so important to take care of you as the parent. If you can't be a calm, regulated, well taken care of parent, you can't you can't give that to your child. So what I found huge for me while we were going through the NICU was was writing, journaling. There's so much research to support how your brain it helps your brain kind of connect those dots, put your story together, process what's happening to you. Would you retell your story, whether that's you just write it down and no one ever reads it again or now that I'm further out of my journey I'm sharing more of it on Instagram hoping to reach other people that may have the same situation as me and I do find and I honestly do think that I'm doing as well as I am with this process because of how much I've been able to kind of rehash it all and let my brain make sense of what is happening right even if you don't know what to write just write what happened that day Right, how you're feeling in that moment, and then gratitude is huge. Write down one thing you're thankful for, even if that day sucked. Um, so that's kind of another one that's I found really huge in helping your child is 
helping you first. So whatever that outlet is for you, whether it's mm-hmm. writing or taking pictures or exactly. meditating or whatever, or exercising, just taking exactly. a walk around the hospital or around the block, that's, yeah, that's important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. Mm-hmm. But what about, hard to remember. Yeah. yes, it is so hard to remember. And when you're in it, it can be hard to remember that it's important. <laughs> it is. Mm-hmm. about because with your situation specifically you were you were managing two very different developmental stages and mm-hmm. still are <laughs> as I am <laughs> what what kind of tips do you have for parents and caregivers dealing with that I think the two biggest things is just really keeping things super simple I did really want to talk about you know kind of how there is so much equipment out there that's kind of pushed in your face, shoved in your face as something that's good for your baby's development or something that, you know, it's so cute and it's so pretty that you can't help but register for it. I did um, the first time right. around. Um, <laughs> they got you too, huh? <laughs> yeah, they got me too. But then it was funny in a way because with twins and having preemies, a lot of the, the teens and doctors and therapists would actually say full out that, that uh, say an exosaucer is not allowed for your preemie and a jolly jumper is yeah. not allowed for your preemie. So these were things that with my first, I, I used still sparingly having my OT right. background, but they were kind of fun things that I would add to break up my day. Sure. Thought, how would I, how am I going to do this? not using those things when I've been told I'm not allowed. And I honestly didn't even end up noticing it. So just, you know, all a baby needs to do when they get home is they need somewhere to sleep, they need to be fed, they need lots of snuggles, and they need a flat surface to play, and they need your face. And that's pretty much it. Whether you have a premature baby or you have a full-term baby, that's it. Um, So I really, really embrace that just flat, give that baby's body the ability to move and roll and respond to their own reflexes. And it was huge. And both my girls, even Olivia was walking by 12 months corrected. And I did not do any extra mummy therapy. I just (laughs) made sure that I met that free playtime, having a toddler run around. My number one tip for anyone who has baby number two is use a pack and play with the bassinet insert. So that way they're kind of up uh-huh. off the floor and still cannot be reached mm. by said toddler. So <laughs> so I had the twins in a twin size pack and play for a good chunk of their first year up on that uh, higher insert where they could play maybe a mobile, maybe a book stuck on the side. They can look around and, and yeah, that was kind of that piece and just using your daily routines to the most of your ability sometimes you know just thinking of tummy time differently than when your baby's just flat on their face not liking it that tummy time is whether they're lying on your face to cuddle or maybe tummy time is you have to take the baby from this room to that room so you're going to hold them tummy down in a football hold Um, or maybe it's just every time you change your diaper their diaper you think okay I'm going to flip you on your tummy right now for a few seconds it's kind of just building those things into your day that you're already doing and not feeling like development needs to be something extra that year. Yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) And just to clarify completely for everyone listening, like the tip literally was just work in the development into your day and the play Mm -hmm. into your day. You're already doing it. It's already happening. Just you need to figure out how to maximize those moments. 
And it's with these little things like that tummy time stuff that you know you're supposed to be doing. Do it during caregiving routines or do it while you're holding your baby in a football hold and your toddler is brushing their teeth and you're singing a song about teeth, right? Or counting or whatever. It's like yeah. that's how you address all of the development mm -hmm. with the stuff that you're already doing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Great. That's awesome. Uh, what about a few favorite resources that you enjoy sharing with families? You mentioned that you like to collect good resources. Um, well, your books. Um, and <laughs> there have been, there was something that I found after we left the NICU that I really wish I found when we were in. The website is called Every Tiny Thing, and it's a NICU nurse who has created specialized NICU journals for parents um, oh. and special milestone cards. So I think sometimes mm -hmm. in the NICU, parents are kind of overly aware of all the normal things that other babies get to do and have like those cute milestone cards that say, I rolled over today, or like, I did this, or she's made a set that you can kind of pop into your child's isolate that's maybe said, you know, like, I came off my breathing support today and kind of make that a normal, beautiful thing. So I wish that I had known about that earlier. But if you mm -hmm. know somebody who maybe is going through the same journey, or you are going to be about to go through this journey, it would be a really cool resource. I really love, I know you've interviewed her, Rachel Coley and Candu Kiddo. Yes. I'm always telling parents to go <laughs> check out her Instagram or her website. She does yeah. that simple childhood development so well mm -hmm. as well. And if you do have any concerns about your child's development, we use this one at work a lot. Pathways is a great yes. organization. Pathways.org is the website. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, where they've got things right down to those videos of say normal motor development versus atypical so you can actually see some of those differences um, and just really help inform yourself if you do have some of those concerns. I'm trying to think of what other books I'm really into right now. I'm a big audiobook junkie. Mm, good. Because <laughs> um, I find with three kids the only time I can quote unquote read is when I'm listening while doing dishes and things like that. Yeah. Um, the Whole Brain Child by Dan Siegel is a really yeah. great. That's a, a really, great one too. A really great resource. I think that's it off the top of my head. <laughs> Excellent. Did I tell you that I'm now just starting to release the books in weekly email slash audiobook form? based on where you are and where your child is you get that week or the directed age week whatever you put in and then you get it as an email wherever your child is and you get a downloadable audio as well and that's oh, that's sound good <laughs> <laughs> excellent and then you get you also receive a link to a video and then a place where like a member's area where you can also engage with other videos and post your own and see other examples of other families engaging with the curriculum. Oh, that's amazing. That community piece is so huge to kind so of just huge. be able to yeah see what other people are doing and just chat about, hey, this is where I'm at. This is how I'm doing it and share. It's that's huge. That's amazing that you're doing that. All right. Well, Jen, thank you so much for being here. And thanks to all of our members who are listening live. We are going to continue the discussion and open up for a Q&A session for you guys in just a minute. But for everyone listening from home or on the go, thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you next time. Thanks for being here. See you later. What will you do the rest of your day? Goodbye to the babies. Goodbye to the toddlers. Goodbye bigger kids. 
Goodbye all the siblings, goodbye to the grown-ups, goodbye to the singers, goodbye Ayala, goodbye to Jennifer, we laughed and we played, we're getting very clever, this is what counts, being here together. Thank you so much, everyone. The Learn With Us podcast brings you information, tips, and resources about all things early parenthood and early childhood. Don't forget to download our free infant toddler development blueprint by heading to learnwithless.com blueprint today. If you haven't yet done so, please do leave a review of the Learn With Less podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify. That helps other people find the good work we're doing. And after you've done that, go ahead and share Learn With Less with a friend or colleague. See you next time.